So, Brian, how do you like your milk tea? Yeah, I actually don't really enjoy drinking milk tea. That's the uh, paradox. I just uh, I don't really like sweet things, and so despite it being like the national drink for Taiwan and some, you know, insofar as bubble tea is a form of milk tea, I don't really like it. Um, also, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand that for bubble tea you were supposed to chew like the boba, like the pearls. I just thought you had to swallow it, and so I was like, why do people like this overly sweet drink that you just swallow this like really hard thing? And it was not until I was an adult that I realized that oh, you're supposed to chew it actually. And so I never right. grew up liking bubble tea, and I don't generally don't like sweet things. So <laughs> I don't know. And in in when I was in Taipei, or I had like it was like the non milky uh-huh. yeah. uh, bubble tea, and it had like the popping like fruity popping bubbles. Fuck, I love that shit. Yeah, they're different varieties. They can uh, uh, have like less sugar. Um, there's also an alcoholic bubble tea, but I've never had that. That's in uh, Taiwan's outlying islands. Mm-hmm. They have it. It's called Mao Zedong bubble tea because just a lot of mainland I... uh, tourists come over. So, sorry, so it. Mao Zedong bubble tea bubble is tea, alcoholic. Uh, Yes, and they add a, a. How have they? How have they combined two of my favorite things? Yeah, in yeah, such it's a actually, way? it's amazing. Yeah, it's a uh, demon wow. galiang, which is like um, it's similar to baijiu, this Chinese kind of liquor. And it's like very hard liquor. Um, some it's like sixty proof or above, and you oh, put that wow. into the bubble tea. And so that sounds delicious, but I've never had it yet because you don't actually have that in in Taipei. Um, you have Thank to travel to the kind of outlying islands. Yeah, I'll have to do that at some point. That sounds. Have delicious. they got any like competing Shanghai Shek tea? <laughs> yeah, uh, there isn't actually, but I think that the I, I feel like that'd be a more appropriate name. Uh, it's just that they they they, they I think uh, whoever invented thought well, it's mostly Chinese people that come over to Taiwan. They're tourists that drink it, so we'll give it a name that's right. familiar to them. But the paradox is actually a lot of uh, mainland tourists are very interested in Shanghai Shek stuff because it does have to do with Chinese history. And you can't really see this in, in China, and so actually a lot of the the, the sites of his like burial, um, historic sites related to him, those are very popular with the Chinese tourists. Nice. <laughs> I went to a um, a Shanghai Shek memorial. There's right. one in Chiang Rai province oh, in northern Thailand. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weird place, man. Yeah, you can have a lot of uh, diasporic Chinese populations that are very uh, venerating of Chiang Kai Shek. Like my my dad is actually yeah, very uh, Gumengtangi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my dad is like a, a, a Chinese Indonesian, and so like a lot of Chinese Indonesians are are kind of interested in that history. Um, sometimes depends. Uh, I thought most Chinese Indone- Indonesians were like lefties who got massacred back in. That's the uh, there. There were a lot, um, and so I mean, my dad was from yeah. the kind of uh, generation that came over to uh, Taiwan after that, just because of the uh, anti-Chinese persecution. Um, but a lot were loyal to the ROC versus the uh, CCP, and so right. that's part of the reason why they ended up here. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how popular Chekhashek is with like a younger generation, but some of the older ones that I encountered are relatives are not like, very into that. Yeah. yeah, I think probably not with the younger generation. Everybody listening today, we're joined by uh, Brian Ho. Uh, Ho, is that the right pronunciation? Hugh. It might as well be Hugh. H-U-G-H. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, no worries. Oh, okay. Um, so, Brian, could you tell us a little bit? Oh, I'm also joined by Samai, as you Hi. Know, of course. <laughs> Hi, Samai. Um, Brian, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, yeah. So, I'm one of the founding editors of New Bloom Magazine, which is a leftist Taiwanese publication that was founded in 2014. Um, at that point in time, we were all participants in the Sunflower Movement, which was a student-led movement that was the occupation of the Taiwanese legislature for a month. Uh, that was against a free trade trade deal that was to be signed by uh, the KMT, the former authoritarian party, which had retaken power through elections at that point in time. 
with China. And so after that movement, we started talking about ways to connect with international uh, social movements to kind of push the movement more to the left, and that eventually became this publication. And so six years later, I'm still doing this somehow. Um, but uh, yeah, I currently live in Taipei. I work as a freelance journalist on social movements, politics, um, arts and culture, and translation as well. I do translation for various things. And you also started Liulshan, right? Oh, which? Wait, is that the right pronunciation? Shit. Uh, yeah, Liulshan. La- Laosan. Uh, I'm also one of the uh, earlier. Sorry. I'm also one of the uh, the members of uh, Laosan. Um, that's been around for a year, and I've been for here around for most of that year. Um, they're Hong Kong based. Um, they're mostly Hong Kongers. A majority of Hong Kongers, and uh, that started after the, or actually just around the time of the kind of protests that have taken place in Hong Kong for over a year now. And so um, I actually don't do too much there. It's more like, more just uh, writing articles once in a while. Um, but yeah, I'm also part of that. Okay, nice. And that's like a lefty that's right. HK thing, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a, also an attempt to kind of create a, uh, try to push the movement in Hong Kong more to the left. So we're very uh, lucky to have you here because uh, milk tea has been a little pain in our ass for a while lately. <laughs> um, so like for me, the Milk Tea Alliance and for a lot of people I know in Thailand, it's considered a bit silly. Like it's referred to a bit snarkily by people on the left. Like the movement, uh-huh. if you will, is quite ethereal in a lot of ways. Like it's hard to work out what it actually is beyond like some Thai Twitter accounts posting rubber duck art and someone in Hong Kong sharing it, you know, uh-huh. which is fine. Uh-huh. Like, that's fine. But it's interesting to see how the Western press particularly has gotten really excited by it. Like, uh-huh. it's this serious pan-Asian liberal solidarity movement. But other than aesthetically, I don't really see what it's for or what it does. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, because just there's this whole, uh, you know, Western phenomenon like, oh, you know, Twitter created the Arab Spring or, or what have you. And I think that the Milk Tea Alliance fits very well into that kind of political imagination, right? It's like what, what people like to see. Uh, they like to see that in these, you know, uh, quote-unquote countries with authoritarianism. You have all these young people connecting online and that, that social movements are developing through social media in this way. Um, and so I think that's why it's really captured the imagination of a lot of Western media. But I think that precisely that's the limitation of it, that a lot of its aesthetics, um, a lot of just internet yeah. memes. I think also the people that use Twitter in Thailand or, or in other, uh, you know, in English language for Taiwan and Hong Kong, it's a very self-selecting group of people, you know, in terms of class background, uh, education level, uh, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's more liberal, let's say. And so that's, that's also the other thing that, that frames this political imagination. I mean, um, it's interesting because it does have to do with China, um, because just that's the original impetus for this sparking. But then it yeah. eventually kind of did expand to uh, just different democratic demands in each country. I mean, Thailand, for example, the issue there does not specifically have to do with, uh, with, with China, for example, yeah. except indirectly. Um, and insofar as all these things are linked structurally. Um, but then just, you know, I think that's, that's kind of a, is this kind of general uh, democratic imagination without any specific concrete uh, political alternative that it poses or without any specific concrete politics? It's kind of just uh, this thing that people can fill in. Now you can be left or right, let's yeah. say, and be supportive of the Milk Tea Alliance. It doesn't have that particular uh, political angle. I mean, there's this kind of implicit, I think, uh, liberalism to it because I think that the people that are really on board with that are mostly liberals. And so they are, let's say, more pro-LGBTQ, uh, more open, you know, in terms of these social issues, but again, there's kind of no concrete politics there. You do have rightists sometimes that are also very pro Milky Alliance. Uh, yeah, no, I've definitely seen that because what the one thing they've talked about in in terms of like Thai Twitter is that it's um, completely not completely, but mostly dominated by um, younger people, mm-hmm. uh, people who are the pro pro democracy or anti government in Thailand, mm-hmm. um, and that's when they start 
and that's where I, I think, as far as I can remember, the milk tea properly comes from. Like, it's not this um, sort of thing that was brought on by mostly the, the active protesters, but more like it happened online, and then it was just, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take that, you know. Uh, that's something that we can stand behind in terms of actual physical protesters. So, sort of trying to understand what's the relationship between the... Um, so the people who organize uh, in some of these sort of uh, protests, uh, liberal protests, we'll say, mm-hmm. uh, in, say, Thailand and, say, Hong Kong, and what's the difference between those people versus, like, the people who do the stuff online, um, mm-hmm. you know, don't necessarily go in person, but is there, is there, um, is there a difference between these types of people, or, or, or could you say that they actually do um, work together, or, or is it like... You know, one pushes in a certain way, and then the other one has to sort of move in that way in order to um, keep that momentum going. If you sort of see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think a lot of it is actually just, for example, uh, again, just class or education ability. You know, you have to have some level of English for these places to kind of communicate online on Twitter. And people that are on Twitter are limited. I mean, I can speak most of the Taiwanese context, but people that are on Twitter in Taiwan, Taiwan, Twitter is not a very prominently used social network in Taiwan. It's mostly people that. Uh, were kind of frightened by Facebook's push to get into China, and so they went on Twitter. And so you get, you know, Chinese language Twitter, and then you have much more limited, uh, actually, Taiwanese people that are using Twitter in English. And so it becomes a kind of small group. Um, and that's kind of interesting, too. I think just the, yeah, just this kind of, uh, that is self-selecting. It does not representative of any movement in these three places as a whole. Um, but it is something that people kind of jump on board with. It's catchy, and I think that people, people like it. Um, I just think that, you know, again, that, it's interesting that it's a it's a phenomenon which you don't really see too many splits or cleavages within that that phenomenon, which is I think represents that it doesn't have any very concrete politics. Because when you do have concrete politics, yeah. inevitably you have you know discussion of tactics and debates and, and that kind of thing that emerge. Um, yeah, I think what is more interesting is that it is it is the, this kind of a, a transnational uh, thing a phenomenon. I think that's a more interesting aspect of it. I mean, again, that also points to the self-selecting nature of it. That you have to be more aware of international events and paying attention to beyond just your own domestic context if you're you actually become kind of invested in this kind of phenomenon. Um, what's also interesting to me, I think, uh, more so, is that the authorities in all three contexts have kind of reacted to it in a just kind of overreaction. Um, again, because it's not actually posing anything on the ground, uh, not actually any political, concrete political force in any of these three contexts, but an online phenomenon, it's not really a threat. But then these kind of authoritarian uh, governments in, in these, re- uh, well, in Hong Kong and Thailand just kind of overreact and they're like, oh, well, color revolution, this is a color yeah. revolution. That old narrative being brought out. So, I mean, so like you said, I see the struggle in Hong Kong to be completely different mm-hmm. from that in Thailand, obviously. Mm-hmm. like different enemies, different political climate, completely different history. And with other solidarity movements in the mm-hmm. rest of the world, like Palestine and BDS or the South African apartheid and mm-hmm. the boycott, there's always like really concrete stuff you can do, like a mass material solidarity movement. And like you were saying, in this case, it's completely like lacking in any material way. And, you know, just boils down to cheering each other on on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, that's fine, but it's, I think it's almost inappropriate to use the word solidarity in this context. Mm-hmm. And then I guess it kind of raises a question of what can solidarity be in the 21st century mm-hmm. under like a hegemonic neoliberal order and like what could a more material-based solidarity mm-hmm. even look like in the milk tea alliance? Totally, I totally. I think uh, that's one of the issues actually, just what is solidarity? Because just solidarity I think a lot of times becomes just this catchword where you're just expressing uh, sympathy or, or a sense of identification with another movement. But you know, just actual uh, concrete exchanges aren't, are, don't really happen, um, you know, whether in terms of like 
just actually materially contributing to another cause or even skill sharing of tactics. That happens, but sometimes it just happens in a very performative nature. That's always been my kind of issue with solidarity. Like you will have skill sharing, uh, you know, things aimed at exchanging tactics, but you know, really you don't really have people bringing back tactics. Um, and you do actually see some tactics being exchanged, I think between these, uh, particularly between Hong Kong and Thailand, regarding dealing with, you yeah, know, riot police sure. or, or uh, tear gas or those kind of things. But I think that yeah. would have happened if there was no multi alliance, just because, you know, in the modern age, we're dealing with like modern police equipment. And so wherever you're at, you're, you're dealing with kind of the similar equipment, um, you know, similar capacity. That's just the technological level of policing we're dealing with. And so you adopt similar tactics and you do look at other examples. And I don't, I don't even think that would have to necessarily occur through solidarity. You just, you know, see what the other side's doing. You don't actually need to have two way exchanges. It can be just like watching videos like, oh, they're doing this against the tear gas. So let's try that too. Yeah. Um, that's a challenge. So I mean, what can it be? What what can what can if if there was a more material solidarity, what what could it even look like? Like for example, I I can't envision any way that like uh-huh. you know Thai consumers could boycott Hong Kong goods or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, to, I'm saying it in like the defense of the Milk Tea Alliance. Like, what what could it yeah. actually do? So I I don't think there is much it could do to be honest. Yeah, I think uh, if we did have a much more robust like materials analysis of just uh, logistics of you know supply distribution and and capital exchanges and that kind of thing, you know maybe there'd be some way to point choke points in different places like oh I actually target this thing in Hong Kong that affects this thing elsewhere or something like that, um, or just you know vice versa in Thailand. I think that just that is lacking on the left, just lacking, uh, you know, sense of, of logistics and, and just international capitalism where mm. we could actually find that kind of thing to do that. Because, you know, when you do have con- these issues, they can only be addressed on a transnational basis. Like, you know, capitalism is not going to be like addressed country to country to country, like one country, then another country or whatever. It's all linked together. And there are ways to actually, I think, materially impact each other because that's just global capitalism. But just we don't know what that is. And it'd be nice to see you know, more people looking into that. I mean, there is like, uh, for example, Taiwan was changing, uh, sending uh, supplies of like gas masks and things like that to Hong Kong, for example, uh, like a year ago. But just that, that's also very limited. And that just, you know, that, that kind of effort eventually just kind of cannot continue. You know, eventually the, the authorities, they have the advantage in cutting off uh, yeah. these supply routes or whatever. Um, you don't really see as much of that, you know, in terms of, let's say, supplies flowing to Thailand from Hong Kong or Taiwan. I think part of it is distance no. identification, um, you know, as well. Um, but just, yeah, I think that actually just thinking about like what would materially be able to uh, affect things. I mean, the authorities just kind of get paranoid. I think they always are. They're always looking at, you know, just like things that they can claim are outside forces or uh, they just kind of see these kind of shadows on the horizon. And so I think they tend to overreact to this kind of phenomenon. Like, um, it's very interesting that there was a case in Taiwan recently. It was one of the first ever uh, kind of cyber, uh, false, like um, mis- disinformation cases, actually, that was pursued by the authorities. And one of the things that they tried to do is actually claim that Taiwan was working with the U.S. to start up these milk tea alliance, you know, things in Thailand and Hong Kong. That's absurd. It was actually just like a badly photoshopped letter being like, hey, let's do this, you know, from like Taiwan to the U.S. And it's like, you know, anyone that has critical reading skills can read that. It's like, what is this? Um, But then... Like, so who was, was who was behind that? So that was actually, uh, it was two Taiwanese people that were working on behalf of, three actually, uh, that were working on behalf of China. They actually went to China to undergo training for this. And it just seems like very like ridiculous. Uh-huh. It's very ridiculous. But also then why did China put, uh, you know, resources into this? And you do see this kind of thing. Yeah. But it's also just like, why? It's, it's an overreaction. I don't actually think they need to be afraid of that. Like, I think part of it's just soft no. power, but I think it's just, you know, overreaction in that sense. Um, so I think the thing with that is it's very it's very interesting to see this kind of transnational online phenomenon of uh, movements that don't implicitly or are not connected. But then actually thinking about just again like how to actually uh, 
have it fill it up with a more substantive, concrete politics, and then see how you can actually influence these these different contexts that are kind of relate together. That's that's a challenge, I think. And so that's a limit. That's think, the yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think in part that because like just think about um, what Gabriel said. Do you think that's in re- in relation to the fact that instead of targeting, say, for example, the elite rich um, inside uh-huh. Thailand and Hong Kong, they uh-huh. target the governments instead, um, meaning that you know because solidarity back in you know. Uh, like like the height of labor movements around the world, solidarity mm-hmm. meant that you you were you were striking against your boss here, mm-hmm. and you were striking against your boss halfway across the country because at the end of the day you're striking against the capitalist class. Mm-hmm. Because Thailand and again Hong Kong aren't protesting against the international bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. and they're protesting against national governments. It mm-hmm. do you think that definitely has like a, do you think that affects the way in which yeah. they can demonstrate solidarity, just I because. I think so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of this, could, the, uh, the mobilizing framework is just this general democracy notion, right? So you're against the government, but you don't know the specifics of what government. Like, you know, the Hong Kong government, let's say, in which you have this highly corporate system in which you have directly uh, corporate interests being registered, re- represented within the legislator, um, is very different from, for example, Thailand, in which you're dealing with like a monarchy and a authoritarian uh, military regime. Well, that, you still have corporate yeah. interests in the. Oh, we, we are obviously, true, yeah, true, yeah, true. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the system of government is, is very different in that way, I think, yeah. between these places. And so this kind of, that's a limitation. But then, you know, when you point to international capitalism, like, um, you know, then, then the, the corporate interests that are in, let's say, the Thai government and the Hong Kong government, you can point to more connections. And these are people that are not, they can just kind of go from place to place to place. They're the bourgeoisie. They can, you know, borders for them are much more fluid. They can just get out. They have no mm-hmm. loyalty to any nation or the people. It's all, you know, their, their class interest. And so I think having a, a, a class analysis of this would be one way to push for international solidarity on, on more materials grounds. Um, and that also does you know, link together why it is necessary to resist these governments insofar as they represent the interests of the bourgeoisie. Um, but I think that that's just the challenge. I think people are not used to thinking of things on in terms of international capitalism. And a response I often get to quote unquote solidarity efforts is like, why are you doing this? Like why, for example, for like New Bloom, like why is this in English? Like why are you trying to connect to these international movements, like they have no direct bearing on our movement. And that actually, I think, has a valid criticism in terms of solidarity, because that's often what I see, that actually you're not seeing uh, actual exchanges in a, a material way or, or you know, thinking of how you can impact the, the uh, political situation in each places. It's just kind of, you know, offering solidarity or just cheerleading each other on. And that's that's yeah. the thing that, that I generally have also as an issue with the kind of book tea framing. It's very catchy, but then, you know, how do you feel, fill up hashtags with, with concrete substance? And that's the other thing, for example, I think we see this in the past 10 years with different online phenomena. Um, I mentioned, you know, the Arab Spring comparison, but also Occupy is a good example, like hashtag Occupy. Mm. But that's like a tactic, you know, how do you actually, uh, you know, just actually have a kind of concrete politics around that. And so you have Occupy Wall Street, but then in other contexts, then it just becomes really a tactic of occupation. You have a lot of occupation style movements occurring at the same time around that. Um, at the same time, you know, I think that what is interesting is that uh, we are seeing a kind of age in which, again, like the past 10 years of, say, occupation-style movements are not really occurring. You're dealing with, you know, a tracking capacities on surveillance capitalism, uh, being able to, you know, figure out who people are from surveillance footage or whatever, uh, tracking social media activity um, and that kind of thing. And so I think that that's the kind of paradigm we're dealing with. And so, you know, the Milk Tea Alliance, you see some convergent tactics between these different places, again, like I mentioned, because we're dealing with the same kind of placing technology. Uh, but then actually how to have more tactical exchanges. I think that that could be a direction this can be pushed in um, because you can learn actually in some ways. Um, but yeah, just actually then getting to the kind of, you know, actually fulfilling the demands of these movements. I think the class-based analysis is what's crucial and that's not there right now. So 
Can we move on to Hong Kong a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, because we've seen the protests in Thailand quieten down mm-hmm. in the past couple months. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people in Thailand right now are dealing with the reverberations of the protests themselves, trying to kind of determine how the political ground has shifted after the earthquake of the past year. Mm. Uh, we've seen Hong Kong quieten down too. Mm. So what is the current situation there? Yeah, I think we're at kind of a current impasse because just there's a wave after wave of crackdown, arrest of you know pro-democracy politicians and activists. And that will be kind of occurring. Um, and you've had some people that have tried to flee. Uh, some people have been successful in fleeing, uh, getting out abroad and, and that kind of thing and living in exile. And, you know, I think just some of these activists now just have to be prepared for very long uh, jail terms because of the national security law. And so I think the Hong Kong movement is dealing with this kind of uh, shock now regarding the uh, these crackdowns, the strengthening of repression. And so some people will get out, uh, some people will just go into jail. And eventually, I think after some time passes, there will be protests. And it's also complicated as with everywhere else in the world right now by COVID-19. And so, you know, it's not yeah. as easy just to have an immediate reaction as a, a protest because just, you know, COVID-19 cases keep going up. And the government also does use that as a, as a justification for repressing uh, you know, mass gatherings. And so that's the current impasse, and the movement's at a turning point, because I think a year later, I mean, no movement can have that peak of activity for such a long time. Um, you know, it was kind of getting, I mean, some, at some points it did seem very apocalyptic last year. There was concerns about Chinese military intervention, about troops gathering across the border in Shenzhen and that kind of thing. And it was very hard to verify those reports. Um, and just, you know, when there's occupation of the airport, for example, Hong Kong International Airport, there's concern that this would be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and provoking repression from China. And then regarding, uh, for example, the siege on uh, CUHK University in Hong Kong, uh, uh, there's also just concern that this would be, you know, another another incident in which, just, you know, finally the police comes in and just kind of goes to this level of brutality, which has not been seen. Um, yeah, I mean, the police have, uh, you know, fired live rounds, but it hasn't gone to the point in which it's kind of conducting mass killings. And so I think that's also another thing. The level of violence has not gone to that point yet. Um, I think that's also another thing that's then telling about these different contexts we're dealing with, that we're in an age in which the government does want to kind of, uh, you know, maintain legitimacy in a way that it maybe did not have to worry about in the past, that it does have to worry about mass media circling images of, of killings and that kind of thing. And so I think that's another kind of restraint in, in Hong Kong. Um, so I think right now it's kind of waiting and seeing game. I think that just every movement always has its ebbs and flows, similar to in Thailand, that there's a high point of activity mm-hmm. and a lower point. And I think that's also necessary just to regather and rethink tactics and so forth. But what I'm kind of afraid of is that just then we'll see a long period of inactivity or that there'll be another period of burnout. I think also what's interesting is that, you know, 2014, the umbrella movement saw a peak of activity. And nobody thought that would be possible for another five years until then there's another wave of eruption. And so I think actually in both contexts, we might actually be dealing with kind of a, a chill period for a while. So I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it seems pretty similar to Thailand. It looks like there's a lot of cases at the moment, uh, Les Majeste cases against a lot of activists. I think 23 against a lot of leading activists. Mm-hmm. So it looks like we're heading into a similar kind of period. Yeah, um, you mentioned sort of like, like cycles and... Mm-hmm. I was just sort of thinking, just in general, just let's back up for a second about the Hong Kong protests. Mm. What sort of um, what sort of previous um, outbursts against authority or the government or the governing systems, you know, including both colonial time and then also un- under uh, China, uh, mm. under Beijing? Um, sort of which of these sort of time periods and protests in these time periods sort of influence and inform the current? Or the most more recent protests more, and sort of mm. what what's the reason behind behind that difference? If, if there's a difference, yeah, yeah, I think uh, actually a lot of its elections, and I think that you might actually see the same thing with Thailand. That you know, just sometimes the, after a spark of the movement, right, there will be a set of elections, and energy will be redirected towards the elections, and so you know that can get to a long discussion of electoralism. Um, but you know, just then there's that, 
and that also happened in in Hong Kong in the past uh, few years. You know, in in just the set of elections, you always had basically sweeps of pro-democracy candidates at local levels, at you know, and so forth. Um, but just these kind of legislative means are increasingly blocked. As I mentioned, just you know, the Hong Kong system is already stacked against uh, pro-democracy forces because you directly have corporate interests that sit in the legislative council. Uh, they're called functional constituencies. It's actually it's very uh, unique as a, as a system. It was set up by the British originally, um, just letting you know directly, yeah. just like you know, corporate interests like directly sit there. No, no pretense about it. Um, at least, hey, at least in the West we're kind of subtle about it. Yeah, just, you yeah, know, have our yeah, big lobbying yeah. concerns and shit like that. Exactly. Kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. Pretend that we're democratic. There's at least one layer of mediation. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's very stacked against pro-democracy forces. But now with uh, Beijing moving to remove, uh, uh, you know, democracy, pro-democracy legislators if they get elected, or blocking them from running entirely, or arresting them after they get removed from office, arresting them before they run for office, that kind of thing. You know, these kind of electoral means are increasingly blocked. And so I think that, you know, in the, in the, the six years since the, plus the seven, well, more six, anyway, since the umbrella movement, you know, then these electoral means kind of don't exist anymore. That's kind of what's new after this last year's movement. And so I think that will kind of shift a lot of the organizing in the future that, you know, can't redirect energy into electoralism. And sometimes it was done by people that had no real hope in the system. It was a way of kind of trying to cool down the movement to prevent it from spilling over into kind of overt violence. Uh, sometimes there are people that really just did have faith in the system. I think much, uh, mm. you know, kind of needlessly so, too much belief in rule of law and that, and that kind of thing when the system is stacked against you. Mm. And I think that's it's also just, uh, um, you know, it's one of those things that actually, in spite of this energy being poured into electoralism in the past uh, six years or so, there's not enough discussion of that. The system is always stacked against you. That you know, you directly have these corporate interests there. And what's interesting there is that this could even push away towards a class analysis. I think of the situation. Uh, just, you know, the corporate interests are usually pro-Beijing because, you know, the bigger markets in Beijing, you know, so that skews their kind of identification, uh, you know, in that, in that regard. Like, Beijing's always a bigger market, and so you want Hong Kong to become more integrated to Beijing because you want access to that. For you, you know, you don't care about democracy, you're the bourgeoisie, you have more freedoms anyway. Uh, yeah. Moving between Hong Kong and, and China is always something you can do. And so that's because, you know, the bourgeoisie, the borders are more fluid to them. And so I think that, that, that could have pushed towards that, but I didn't see that. And so it was still this kind of democratic framework. Um, in the past years, you also did see the rise of localism, you know, just kind of more like Hong Kong identity, more in, uh, pushing for kind of independence. But just sometimes there was more, you know, more also calling for more radical tactics. But sometimes that just, uh, you know, that, that, that would provoke, you know, backlash from authorities in regards to retaliation or disqualifications. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's interesting when you were talking about the corporate uh, concerns that are in parliament. Or is it parliament? Uh, legislative or just legislature? Council. Okay. Yeah, it's usually called like LegCo. Okay. Or, you know, Legislative right. Council. So it's, yeah. It's interesting that there there hasn't really seemed to be that much of a clear, well-articulated leftist response. And it seems like something which would be quite easy to make a leftist response to. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to ask a bit about the left in Hong Kong, like at uh, Liu Shan. Liu Shan, Lao San, again, Lao San. is that right? Yeah. La damn it. Lao San. <laughs> uh, you've covered it, like, yeah, really great coverage of the left in Hong Kong, but it's pretty hard to get... Uh, idea of what the ideological demographics are of the protest movement and I know this is a well-worn question but you know as well particularly how has it maybe changed since the protests have simmered down and, and what kind of I, I know you can't put a percentage on it but like if you could give us some idea of uh -huh. what the kind of ideological demographics are of, of the protest. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's one of those things. I mean, maybe other members of Laosan could speak better to that, and, you know, I don't speak for the collective. Um, but just, uh, uh, I think the issue is particularly that there's so much baggage regarding uh, this kind of pro-democracy politics. And this is, I think, a good point of comparison to Thailand, actually, just, you know, have these long-standing establishment parties that have been around for uh, forever, 
and so the you know, but the younger generation views them as kind of too caught up in infighting with each other, or too you know, um, ossified, or, or dinosaurs. yes, dinosaurs are yeah. unable to kind of mobilize or appeal to young people. And so then you have these kind of more localist forces that step in, and sometimes they will actually refer to themselves as right wing. And I think that's really colored by the fact that China has framed itself as being left wing. And so like, oh well, you know. China's left wing, therefore I'm right wing, and that pushes them into kind of uh, collaboration with with the right wing force of the world, or idealizing Donald Trump, or even and like the Marco Rubio crowd. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, that uh, yeah, and Ted Cruz's, and uh, and uh, uh, you know even like Brexit or things like that. Being Brexit is a model for yeah. getting out of a uh, nation or, or independence or whatever. Um, that's a, that's really a big issue, and I think that that's the issue with young people. That young people, you know, they they have grown up in in this environment. I think uh, the younger generation. Has been their experiences have been really colored by China being this force that's directly linked to their li- lives and siphoning away their political freedoms, and so that's pushed them into you know idealizing the right wing sometimes because China has really monopolized the left uh, discourse or claiming to be left. And I think then the unions uh, have the same kind of issue that a lot of the unions are you know just also dinosaurs. Now uh, some are pro China, and that's another issue. Um, you know the history of leftism in Hong Kong. There were leftist riots in the 1960s, and a lot of the the, the leftists, quote unquote, just also did identify with China, and that's that's another issue. So there's this kind of identity issue and pushing for a left that's more pro autonomy or uh, not nationalistic, not nationalistic, but still pro autonomy has been very difficult. And so you know also there's the commonly term, uh, commonly used term thrown around, left plastic, which is just referring to leftists as kind of. Uh, you know, just kind of having these uh, things that are very up in the air, these ideals that are not very realistic, not very practical, uh, and just uh, it just it's not connected to material realities. And I think because you know that particularly you do have the academic left, and I think that's the thing that people are reacting against sometimes. The very academic left that'll mm-hmm. just come in like, oh well, your movement is not whatever, 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 and so you know it's all invalid. Um, and I think that you know there's also this kind of suspicion of the left as just being a, a kind of disguised form of Chinese nationalism because just again. I, you know, there were there will be people that use the word term left literally as a, a synonym for patriotism or nationalism in China, and so I think that's that's been right. an issue. Um, this kind of accusation of left plastic or that kind of thing, I think you see that thrown around at leftists just kind of the world over of just you know like you're too concerned with your ideals, you're not in touch with practical realities, and so I think that's that's a challenge actually between these different contexts though it is actually just how to connect uh, these left ideas with people's material realities in a way that speaks to them and allows them to realize that you know you can't just just uh, you know it's this, the democracy framework is, is very vacuous uh, that the right wing is not your friend and so forth but also not just catering too much to uh, you know just the mainstream and in that way you're kind of diluting your message or just trying to you know aim for some kind of populism I think that's 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 generally a challenge facing a lot of context yeah yeah we've seen sadly quite a you know, I think it's I think it's via Hong Kong as well. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of uh, Thai protesters kind of reaching out to the US, which is quite uh-huh. tragic. Um, being like, "Oh, please come and save us!" And then the Thai right as well have kind of now been saying, "Oh, you know, this is a color revolution. Uh, this is an NED. Uh, you know, putting money in the pockets of protesters. You know, the same accusations against the Hong Kong protesters." But like, I think that it started. From what I saw, it started with Thai protesters reaching out to the American right, uh-huh. which was pretty fucking That's tragic. right, that's right. I just think that um, it, it really feeds into the whole conspiracy that is brought out by a couple of people, um, some people closer to home than I'd like to admit, um, <laughs> sort of saying, uh, you know, that, oh yeah, these protesters, they're all funded by, like, the CIA and all that stuff, and it's like, it's all American-backed. I was like, well, I mean... Back in the day, I'd be inclined to... Are you referring to, to, to our comrades in Europe? Um, what do you... What, what, what do you mean? The, the, our comrades in Europe saying that the Hong Kong protesters are CIA-backed. 
No, no, man, I'm talking about like a family member. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, no, what, what I was saying was um, like, you know, it, it, uh, the, the, the fact that these protesters are calling out to the United States doesn't help their case mm. when trying to um, deny claims that they're funded by, you know, the CIA, for example. Um, and, and, you know, back in the day, like, if, if we were having this discussion during um, what was going on with the Contras, I would be saying, you know, I believe you. I, this makes sense to me. However, like the the number of um, uh, actually no, I, I take back everything I just said because I've just realized the CIA still does their bullshit across the world. Um, yeah. So course. so great. So is the Thai protest just the CIA bots or <laughs> have we been have I been duped? I mean, you know what's kind of dark. Um, I was talking to somebody quite uh, leading protest activists in Thailand and there's this like telegram group which kind of you know tells mm. people where to go and protest and stuff like that this was this was a few months ago it was when it was all on telegram and um and I was like asking so many people like who's adminning the group uh-huh. and they're like you know what actually I don't know uh-huh. and like I was talking to one friend who's like uh, the host the Thai host of this podcast and he was like yeah man maybe it is CIA I'm fucking <laughs> like it's possible <laughs> You know, uh, but we're using them to our ends as well. So who gives uh-huh. a shit? So yeah, uh, yeah. It's um, so it's one of those challenges because yeah, the CIA is. I mean, the, the American government is trying to use these protests for their advantage. I mean, they do that with any movement, really. But you know, it's like yeah. I mean, how do you get people to break out of the framework? Also, just you know, get around this kind of conspiratorial kind of thinking. Um, you know, everyone has one of those family members. I would say <laughs> that's you know, like ah, oh, uh, it's all CIA. I think, uh, in, in Gabriel's oh, man, house, I, in Gabriel's Christmas house, dinner, he I is the family. family. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was just saying, <laughs> we've just had like a few conversations. Wearing my George Bush did not let him Yeah, yeah. So where were we gonna go? Okay, so just to shift a little bit eastwards towards Taiwan, mm. there was a thread that did the rounds a while back about how Taiwan kind of democratized itself, starting in the early eighties. From a complete U.S. puppet regime to mm. a more democratic one, mm. and a lot of people were saying this could be a good model for Thailand. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that process as briefly as is possible? I know it's a big, big process, yeah. but um, and do you think is there anything that Thailand could potentially learn from it, or, or like what mistakes were made, or could Thailand do differently? Something. Yeah, like it's that? one of the it's one of the paradoxes. I think that replicating that model was very difficult because you know we talked a bit about let's say color revolutions, quote unquote. Uh, this did occur actually at the same time as that you know in the nineteen eighties, the wave of color revolutions and the yeah. breakup of the Soviet Union, and so uh, and also just that was uh, you know particularly the KMT regime had a lot of internal pressures uh, to reform. Uh, for example, you know, the KMT was always, you know, maintaining its legitimacy in Taiwan on the basis of distinguishing itself from China. And so, you know, you had a massive student movement in 1990, for example, one year after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And so that ended up being a, uh, a, a kind of a pressure point in which the, the government, the, the Taiwanese government, did not want to come with military force because it did not want to look at, like, China, for example. Um, there's also just the fact that there's an identity split in Taiwan. Um, so the KMT, when it came... Uh, in after the Chinese Civil War, it brought along with it 10% of the present population. I mean, 10, 10% is like the descendants. And they constituted like an elite ruling political uh, and economic class during the authoritarian time. Uh, they were the people that held jobs in government. Uh, they were teachers, they are part of the army and the police, you know, the, the people that have monopoly on violent society, um, and so forth. And the rest was 90% uh, or uh, which were the kind of from earlier waves of, of immigration over the last 400 years from China, or they were like the 2% or so indigenous population. 
And so there's that. Yeah. And so there's that internal pressure to reform. Uh, just, you know, people were getting angry that it was only the mainlanders that are holding these positions in government and so forth. Um, and so there was the, 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 in order to maintain power, the KMT knew it would have to accommodate to some extent. And so it did that by naming Li Donghui, who is Banchiren, like, you know, you know, one of the, the kind of quote unquote native Taiwanese, uh, though not indigenous, uh, as, as the vice president and later the president after Cheng Jingkuo, the son of Cheng Kai-shek, died. And so then, because he was actually in power, he was much more sympathetic towards the, um, you know, the pro-democracy forces, the pro-independence forces. He actually kind of rose into power while kind of closeting his own pro-independence views for decades. And so that's kind of unusual. And, and when you say like pro-independence, how, how, what is your kind of U.S. concern regarding that? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Let me let me get to that a bit. Actually, just in the sense that okay, it sorry. makes sense to talk about it a bit later um, in the timeline historically. Right. So, you know, actually, just because there was a sympathetic force at the top, uh, he restrained the party to that extent from actually coming in and cracking down on students. And there was the push to reform within the party, um, which is, and so the party kind of relinquished force to some extent, knowing that it just couldn't deal with this kind of movement. Um, and so I think when it comes to a model for Thailand, it's a question. Like, I don't really see these forces for reform within the party or just this identity split that would create this internal yeah. split in the party. Um, but then to get to the U.S. concerns then, um, you know, actually, eventually the U.S. becomes concerned about this kind of pro-independence push. Uh, you know, in 2000, when you have the first non-KMT president, you know, the U.S. is very concerned that he'll declare independence from China, and then the, this will spark war or something like that. And so the U.S. did kind of intervene and, and try to kind of discredit him. You know, he was, he was painted as kind of uh, a kind of um, provocateur or someone that was, you know, very kind of just crazy, this crazy right. man that was, you know, very bent on pushing for ideologically for independence, no matter what, if that would provoke, you know, Chinese retaliation or whatever, just the fear that was get the U.S. sucked in. And so, you know, right now, uh, jump forward 20 years, we have another, you know, the second non-KMT president in history. And it's the first time, actually, a non-KMT po- political party has controlled the legislator, uh, Tsai Ing-wen. And, you know, the U.S. is kind of on her side now. The extreme strengthened U.S.-Taiwan relations in the past year because of this desire to counter China. But actually, in 2012, when she ran for president for the first time, you know, just kind of as, a, you know, as the first DPP president, Chen Shui-bian's kind of possible successor, the U.S. tried to inter- intervene as well. Again, it tried to discredit her. It said that, you know, it didn't have faith in her to maintain stability across the, these straits. Uh, it just not view her as an effective leader. And, you know, I mean, just uh, she is a kind of technocrat. She is a neoliberal technocrat. But, you know, as the COVID-19 handling of Taiwan has shown, she is an effective leader, uh, administrator anyway. And just like, you know... I mean, she seems like the kind of a really great, you know, proxy president for, for U.S. interests to me. I, I don't really... You know, see see what problems they could have. You know. Yeah. So actually, that's the thing, though, just that even now there's caution within the government just regarding like the U.S. could throw them under the bus right now. And so I think that you know you've seen just all this rhetoric appealing to the Trump administration, but it's true that actually within the administration they are actually aware that the U.S. did try to throw them under the bus, you know, eight years ago, and this could happen again. I mean, just you know, conquering China, for example, could not actually mean defending Taiwan. You could just you know like oh well, let's leave Taiwan right. to China. It's too you know close to them. It's too dangerous. So we'll just you know counter China elsewhere with you know south korea and japan and the philippines and, and that kind of thing mm. and so you know just it just opposing china does not include supporting taiwan necessarily and so you know i think you've seen this kind of appeal to the right-wing forces of the u.s i mean just now um biden won um you know a lot of people in taiwan were not willing to accept that because of this idealization you didn't win stop the steal exactly exactly so you still see that <laughs> um but just then you know i think that there's also this the kind of issue now well you know Taiwan has built all these ties with the Trump administration. They're on their way out. There's concern about the Biden administration, like whether that will be supportive of Taiwan, whether it'll be, you know, as strong on, on China or not. Um, and so, you know, the attempt to build ties with the Biden administration and so forth. Um, yeah, so I think there's that kind of, that's kind of that unfortunate paradox. 
Um, yeah, and so I think also democratization is interesting where the U.S. concern is concerned too, because uh, I mean, for the U.S., I mean, it doesn't really matter who's in charge as long as who you know, as long as they are subordinate to U.S. interests. And for a while, that was the right. KMT, and for a while now, it's more the DPP, you know, the, the pro-independence party, more pro-independence leaning party. Um, and so, you know, because that's also that points to the fact that the KMT underwent a very bizarre shift in the past, you know, decades that it was originally the party that fought the CCP uh, and was defeated by the CCP and came to Taiwan. But then yeah. they're, you know, gradually they're, they're, they, they, they hope to retake China and become, you know, just the, the ruler of China again. Once that became impossible, yeah. their identity uh, concern took precedence. And so just becoming part of China again was their dominant concern, no matter what, even if it was just through kind of acquiescing to the CCP. And I think that also points to the class character mm. of the KMT, that they were a uh, political and economic elite. And so because they wore that in Taiwan, for them, it's, it's all fine if just Taiwan becomes part of China, you know, similar to Hong Kong. So they, they would just, they would actually stand to make more money with their businesses and, and that kind of thing. And, and uh, because they were the party that was connected to the corporations and they ran a very corporatist party state. Um, so actually just assimilating to, to China, that, that works for them, actually. Um, they could still be, they, they could yeah. actually sometimes even think that they could retake the political and economic privileges that they kind of gradually lost over time as Taiwan democratized if Taiwan became part of China. And so I think that 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 does this all present. Yeah. It's interesting to see how these kind of bitter rivalries can over years be put aside. Uh-huh. And, you know, when, when economic interests are exactly. at home. So it, yeah. it kind of reminded me of how much hostility there was between the Thai monarchy and the military after the Thai military coup of 1932, which mm, the monarchy initially. And and after a while, they just kind of realized, oh, no, actually, our, you know, interests in, you know, just being very powerful and being very rich actually align if we do actually work together. Like, yes, we've hated each other for decades, but, you know, in the long run, we're better off friends. Exactly. And I think that even to point out a parallel to, say, monarchy as an institution, uh, the CCP and the KMT, they're very family oriented. You know, the current leadership of China, they refer to some of the second generation, like they're the descendants of, you know, the leaders of the glorious days from you know, the Mao and, and Deng era, they're the second generation. Um, and so they it's come this kind of a, you know, refer to like a red, red second generation is coming uh, people that are descended from these kind of families, these powerful families that were of prominent leaders in the CCP are pretty well off, uh, you know, financially, uh, in terms of social influence and so forth. And they have access to political power, they became the leading class. And this was also the case with the KMT, that the leadership um, are often from these very powerful families within the family. Uh, within the party, uh, you know, the descendants of these prominent leaders, um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's grandson is like a legislator, his like, great-grandson is another legislator, um, things like that. Um, you know, even my family is like KMT and just like, yeah, um, and they they were tied to political power in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, they, they, they're they interested aligned in this way because they were these families that inherited political power of, you know, ruling China or Taiwan. And so like, oh, actually our interests align. And so we should actually work together, maybe, despite this hostility. Yeah. Um, you do have some really weird cases, like you know these old veterans that like they literally fought against China and their like comrades were like killed by China, and then now they're really pro China and they will just travel to China and like meet with their old, you know, like enemies and like get drinks with them and things like that. That's a little hard to understand, but the class interest, yeah, definitely aligns. I think um, even with these older people now, yeah, they, their class interests align because they, you know, are they eventually gained economic privilege and prestige in society from the basis of their former military whatever achievements. Yeah, I was gonna say something that was sort of related to the whole how you can suddenly switch um, sides based on sort of class interests mm. and a change in political tact. When Deng came about and he switched foreign policy ideas, all of a sudden mm-hmm. um, there was no, zero support for the CPT um, by China mm-hmm. and it was full yeah. backing mm-hmm. of the um, of the royal Thai government. So that was just... A, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, we're gonna, there's, there's actually been a kind of a royalist... Uh, 
former communist insurgent yeah, movement, which yeah. is really huh. depressing wow. in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Sucks. Yeah. I mean, no, that meme, it was not a meme, but it was like a like like a, like a humorous thing you, you sent me, Gabriel. That was actually like, it, it hurt too much. It hurt me. The, like, the the logo, which was like the royal logo with the communists. Yeah, yeah. So so it's like oh, it's man. like the symbol of the symbol of the dynasty, the symbol of like the Jakri dynasty, and then it says the oh, royal yeah. communist party of Thailand, or something like wow. that. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And they they even had a mini march as well to show their support for the monarchy during the protests. Wow. Ah, sucks. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah like you kind of talked a bit about Taiwan politics, and I kind of want to explore this idea of the left in Taiwan and how they're kind of uh-huh. caught between a rock and a hard place um, and in uh-huh. Hong Kong as well because you know you have the US on one side and China on the other with little room for the left to maneuver uh-huh. in between the two so I'm kind of wondering totally, what totally. is the state of the left in Taiwan and not just the kind of young contemporary left but leftist politics or uh-huh. ideals in general that's right. Um, so also, I think Taiwan historically, the, there's also the association of the left with China. Um, so among the older generation, particularly like the old labor movement, you know, you're still going to get these people that really idealize China as a socialist utopia. And even now you have that. And that's always been kind of an issue. Um, and then, you know, the younger generation, the ground has kind of been clear, like there's not this association of the left with China. And so actually that paradoxically, you know, it's just um, you have a lot of interesting left ideas from young people because just the fact is the ground has been cleared. There's not this association. And I think in Taiwan, because it's marginalized by the international world, it always sees kind of like, it always is trying to figure out what's the most like advanced or, you know, progressive idea to kind of uh, impress the rest of the world with and to try to, you know, gain admittance to the international world. And so actually for a lot of, you know, young people of, of this generation, of the sun of generation, that was actually the left. And so they thought, you know, these progressive ideas were kind of, uh, you know, just, that's the way to actually, you know, impress the world, like be more advanced or progressive than everyone else, legalize gay marriage, yeah. and so forth, and that kind of thing. And so that's led to a lot of interest in, in even kind of radical ideas. But the paradox is then, like, you know, how do you fill that with more content? Um, and also then what happens when this generation kind of takes power and, and uh, uh, you know, is, is has to deal with, with state power, for example, because there are a lot of young people that are in office now, uh, even former left activists. And that's, that's also the issue then, historically, just, you know, in terms of uh, this kind of independence unification split in the labor movement, then you had, uh, what would you end up having on both sides is actually because of the identification issue, you would just end up having leftist activists who eventually join either the DPP or the KMT. And that's a paradox. For example, I think some of the Hong Kong... Like liberal capitalists, those parties, right? Um, Well, it's kind of just, uh, for example, on the more uh, pro-unification side, you would have, you know, former leading uh, labor activists who'd be like, well, you know, both parties are the same, you know, they're both parties of capital. So I'm actually going to join the KMT now. And it's like, what? Because okay. <laughs> that's the former authoritarian <laughs> party. And then, then the, you know, they, for them, it's actually their identity concern shows through, actually. These are, you know, um, these are usually older people, like way older. Uh, but because okay. I identify with China all the time. And so, you know, they're like, well, now we're post-democratic. I treat both parties equally. And we're in the post-democratic period in which the KMT is running as a democratic party. And so I'm actually going to join the KMT now. And so you have that phenomenon. And that's, that's always been controversial in the past. Even under Ma, you know, when the KMT took power again for eight years, you had people that were like, former labor movement serving under him. Um, you know, and right now there's like a party that's more kind of uh, more KMT leaning. Uh, it's like the Pan Blue Camp is called. And it's like a party that has like a former leading labor activist along with like the assistant of Terry Go of Foxconn, like who's now a legislator. And they're part of the same party. And that's like, that's yeah. a really like wretched situation. So you have a lot of these kind of like former labor activists and there's kind of uh, identity, their identity of China eventually takes precedence and they kind of end up in these, these parties. Um, and then right. on the other side, with uh, with usually like with the younger people are more Taiwan identified uh, because they see the threat of the KMT. Sometimes research uh, the, the KMT has been like 
you know, sometimes sometimes it will have periods of resurgence, despite the fact that it's mostly kind of not done too well since the Sun Farm movement. And so that kind of spooked them into joining the DPP. And so, for example, uh, three years ago, there was a set of very heavy labor protests against the Tsai administration. Um, these were not actually from the traditional labor groups. These were from basically the Sun Farm movement activists. They were very upset against changes to the Labor Standard Act, like the, the main labor law in Taiwan, that would have undone 30 years of labor reforms. It was a kind of attempt to you know, push Taiwan back to the era of uh, economic and manufacturing productivity, yeah, um, just yeah. by undoing all these labor reforms, try to win back manufacturing, which, you know, you have that crazy idea everywhere. That's how I was trying to push for this. And so, you know, you had these kind of, uh, you know, young activists that were not traditional labor activists, kind of very in these very uh, intense protests, the, head, the most intense set of protests since the Sun Farm. But then one year later, the KMT seemed like it was doing well again. It was suddenly, you know, riding back to power. And so that spooked a lot of these activists that were at the forefront of this, this movement into actually joining the DPP. And so you have this pattern of, uh, of, uh, you know, labor being kind of, or activists being kind of co-opted by both parties in that sense. And so... They just get sucked in. Exactly. And so that's, that mm. kind of institutionalization is, is a challenge for the left, I think, in Taiwan. And the more radical left, um, you know, um, you know, I think these people kind of frame themselves as progressive, or they might be interested in radical ideas, but not, they might not consider themselves radicals. Like, they would read Marx, but not consider themselves Marxist or whatever. Um, right. The more radical left, I mean, that's just kind of, uh, that's, that's actually the, just the kind of uh, thing that they're confronting now. So there is, for example, in the past year, there's a, a there's a apart from May Day, apart from National Workers Day, there's one other major labor protest every year in Taiwan. It's called a uh, Autumn Struggle, and so this year it was just captured by the KMT. Like just like suddenly the KMT, just like they were in charge of it now, mm-hmm. or it was received that way. Um, just you know, there was uh, anger against the DPP for trying to lift uh, limits on pork imports from the U.S., which would affect you know Taiwanese farmers, for example. Um, right. It was a it's a uh, it's a rectopamine treated pork, which is a growth hormone. And uh, it's it's a precondition for signing a FTA with the U.S., uh, a bilateral trade agreement, a free trade agreement. Yeah. Um, and the Tsai administration is angling for that to try to increase uh, ties between the U.S. And, and Taiwan, to increase incentive for the U.S. to defend Taiwan in case of uh, Chinese attack. And, uh, you know, there's, there's always concern about food, but, you know, and I think that the left historically has pointed to where this would affect Taiwanese farmers. Um, you know, this, was, uh, this led to protests, for example, around when Taiwan joined the WTO in the, in, uh, the 2000s. But then, you know, this time around, it's the KMT decided to leverage on this issue, and they kind of just took control of the protester, or even if they, the organizers claimed that they, they were themselves from the KMT, like, suddenly it's all full of, you know, KMT supporters and, like, the right wing of the KMT, too. And so there's that issue, and now the labor movement is kind of just tearing itself apart because of that, like, you know, yeah. That sucks. Yeah. How, how then... Yeah. How then do you think, like, uh, the... the, the, the how, do you, how do you think that the Taiwanese left can then sort of break that sort of tendency to be co-opted or sort of the, uh, I don't know not, not, not to say it like pejoratively but like the weakness where it is uh-huh. able to be sucked up by by either party how, how does it sort of forge its own path yeah that's a, that's an issue um so some people you know uh, uh, of course pose the alternative of running a party of labor that stands for the interests of labor but usually just that party eventually evidences some you know very clear identification split and it's in 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 the past like uh even after the Sun Farm, it's always been in the pro-China direction. It's all just the same, you know, pro-unification left people. You know, there was a party called the Labour Party, uh, and that's that's very controversial because it was so pro-China. And there was another one, it was called, like, the Left Party in, like, the uh, last set of elections, I think. And it was also just very pro-China. And so I think maybe just the, the thing is the KMT, you know, and the kind of identification China China more generally, that's kind of on its way out um, in the sense that, like, just, you know, young people overwhelmingly identify with Taiwan, even if you're descended from the mainlanders that came from China, like like I am. Um, and so just, uh, you know, people of my generation. And so I think maybe running a party of labor that's more Taiwan-focused is one possibility. But then the, there's still the issue that it's still caught up within this two-party framework, in which is dominated by both parties. 
And so having a kind of uh, a left-wing party that's more pro-Taiwan would still get sucked into this kind of orbit of the two major parties. And so that's an issue, actually. Actually, I actually don't know in that respect. And I think possibly it might have to do with the KMT no longer seeming to be a threat. Mm. Uh, if the KMT is completely marginalized, I think a long-term future, that will uh, create a more of an ability to create a kind of left-wing alternative. Um, because I think what's interesting about the DPP is that it is the center-left quote unquote, party, quote-unquote, but actually uh, it's a party that was formed on the basis of resistance to KMT. You know, it was a former movement party. It was formed during the democratization period of different political forces that in their only common basis was opposition to the KMT. And so there's a left wing of the DPP and there's a right wing of the DPP. It could be actually two parties. It could be a center-left party and a center-right party in itself. It's like a big ten. Yes, yes. And so I think if the KMT ceased to exist, it's possible the DPP would split. And so, you know, some of these kind of younger activists that are in the DPP might kind of split to the left. Um, and so then in that in that respect, I think there'd be more possibilities for uh, maybe pushing for, for a party of left labor mm. that's more mm. pro Taiwan focused or something like that. Um, but also just, you know, the KMT, the issue is that it has still, despite the democratization of Taiwan, it still has many advantages. It was only until this year, for example, or I mean, sorry, it was only until 2016 that the DPP as a non-KMT party controlled the legislature for the first time. Um, local politics, the KMT still has a kind of a, a stranglehold over that because they have access to uh, more resources. Uh, they, they still retain property from uh, the Torchan period, actually. They just hung on to some uh, property from seizures in their kind of party hands. They have a lot of money. Uh, and also in terms of local networks, clientless networks, or connection with organized crime, or corporations like, you know, uh, within, or, or companies, development companies within local areas. And so it's actually very difficult to break out of that. And so I think the, the KMT actually, like, if overall it's still, you know, weakening, it still has a, a, an ability to compete when it comes to local politics. And that's kind of what makes it dangerous. So I actually don't know, but I think this, eventually the KMT will fade and that will create more room. But I think, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just very difficult. I think actually providing for a more pro-independence leftist perspective might be the way. And that's kind of the basis for forming New Bloom. But, you know, we're not a political party and we don't know what to push for. So, <laughs> so I mean, before we let you go, I also wanted to ask a little bit about China and specifically Chinese foreign policy. Like, I think Ooh, it's pretty uh -huh. well known, their approach to Taiwan and Hong Kong. But regarding the rest of Asia, um, it seems to me that China is taking a completely different approach from, say, the US in mm. that right now, anyway, their foreign policy is almost strictly economic other than some weird aberrations like that anti-milk tea plot you were talking about. Like, for example, yeah. the port they control in Sri Lanka, um, China doesn't really give a shit about like the domestic politics of many of mm. these other countries so long as their economic interests aren't threatened. And their means mm. of achieving these economic interests have, in my opinion, been very like tactically savvy compared to the US mm -hmm. who are yeah. just like lumbering, mm -hmm. you know, elephants who yeah. come uh -huh. in, impose sanctions, stage a coup, whatever in another country if uh -huh. they don't play ball. But China seems way more hands off. Like mm. you do whatever, we're only interested in the port, uh, for mm. example. But this yeah. but this certainly is not the portrayed perspective from Washington or London, you know, they uh -huh. portray them as a lot more, you know, imperialist, expansionist, what have you. So I'm kind of wondering what the view is from East Asia, not just among governments, but the mainstream press and kind of the population at large. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, China, for example, um, you, know, you do have it, its actions phrased in neocolonialism, particularly in Africa, um, because just, you know, uh, expanding economic interests in that respect to expand political interests. But I think that for China, it's a uh, so it's interesting actually, right? You know, the way Washington will phrase it, it's that you know we're interested in capitalism. We don't have ideology. We're interested in capitalism, and so we'll support the forces of our free market. And look at China; they're communists. They're trying to spread their communist ideology. 
I think it's actually kind yeah, of the by opposite supporting yeah, free yeah. market ventures, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's actually Washington that's incredibly ideological here. And sometimes we'll just back political forces because of ideology. Um, you know, the KMT in Taiwan is very interesting, right? Like Washington, some force in Washington still back the KMT because they still have not caught on to the fact that it's switched allegiance that right. it's now pro-China. And they still have this view of it as, you know, just the anti-communist force. This is like caught back, you know, decades. And so Washington is actually more ideologically uh, you know, kind of lumbering in that respect. It's just weighed down by ideology in respect. I think China, it's, you know, it modernized much more recently. It's better, uh, it's more practical in that respect. It's, you know, be hands-off. Um, you know, they claim that this is their foreign policy, that you take care of your internal concerns, so it's internal concerns, and just, you know, just give us support or something, or just allow yeah. us to build this infrastructure. And I think uh, uh, China sometimes will actually switch, uh, you know, which, which proxy force it does back sometimes because just of practicality. Um, and so that's that's the thing. I mean, I think I think that just the Chinese foreign policy is also uh, another way to put it. Look, look at it is that it's uh, in the process of developing because it does not have the global reach the U.S. does. I mean, let's say mm. if it did actually manage to achieve a position of hegemony worldwide, it eventually develop some kind of you know ideology that weighs it down in this respect, um, and it probably just do the same kind of things that Washington does. But I think it's still trying to get there. And I think actually the U.S. as the dominant hegemon of the world is China's model for what to try to get to eventually, um, achieving this kind of position um, of, of paramount supremacy, supremacy, but it still hasn't gotten there. And so I think China's still trying to work that out. Um, but yeah, I think that the infrastructure development projects, um, you know, China sometimes does leverage on the history of old communist parties, you know, the kind of South-South uh, solidarity, that's a, the term that gets thrown around. Um, Chinese leftist intellectuals will actually, you know, the nationalist intellectuals that are providing the kind of ideological justification for C's action, that's usually how they frame it, actually. You know, China and Africa, for example. Um, Africa is mm. an example. Um, other parts of Asia, less so, because there's much more baggage. But, you know, they will still draw on the history of, uh, you know, backing Southeast Asia, for example. And so, yeah, yeah that's, the, that's, the, that's the paradox. But I think that Asia becomes a little different because, uh, as a, as a uh, um, example, then, then, for example, Africa, because Asia, other parts of Asia are right next door. When China is actually expanding its influence, other countries will find it threatening. And so it's actually kind of more difficult for China in that respect. Um, it's different. It's you know you can actually draw on this kind of uh, discourse of South-South cooperation much more easily when you're dealing with let's say Africa, which is you don't share any borders with, and which is not yeah. you know your next door. It will not feel threatened by your uh, strengthening economic, political, and military uh, abilities, for example. Well, it's interesting. I think there's like in Laos certainly China have this, mm -hmm. I, Laos pretty yeah, much yeah. Chinese colony at this point, for example, mm -hmm. and I, I, I yeah. wonder to what end that is a model. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, there's so much resistance at, in places like Thailand, for example, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. uh, and Burma, Burma a bit less so, uh, but I, I really don't see them falling into the same kind of hegemony that yeah. the US has imposed, maybe that's naive of me, And but, but yeah. the means so. of actually chasing these, these goals is, is very much right now purely done through economic and and through mm. infrastructural and economic kind of hand in hand um yeah and yeah I, I i i don't and people kind of talk about china as you know this you know world war three they're gonna have proxies all over mm -hmm. the world what have you i i just don't i don't see it at all frankly i think uh, i think regionally it's very interesting because china has all these territorial claims right like you know south china seas that's a major source of opposition with like vietnam and the philippines and, and so forth right like so aligning with these countries uh, it doesn't seem actually sometimes, on, I mean, just, you know, Duterte sometimes is vaguely pro-China, um, although, you know, he still maintains his relation with uh, the U.S. Uh, but, you know, China has, yeah. uh, it's not really going to align with other countries of the region sometimes against the U.S. because it has all these conflicting territorial claims and it's fighting over resources with other countries. 
Um, yeah. Also, just you know, the India-China border conflict is interesting too because you know, um, you know, India-China conflict will be, I think, a, a key kind of flashpoint to keep an eye on as as time goes on. Um, you know, you did, see, did you see the video become... of the fighting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, yeah, and also just say, yeah, and also, <laughs> also, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah, like, um, yeah, just like, yeah, killing each other with like, I don't know, like it's brutal. Um, but also like then, then the stones. Uh, sticks and stones are back in like the Stone Age suddenly. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and also, just, for example, just let me talk about online phenomenon. Um, India sometimes weirdly included in the Milk Tea Alliance, and that's a phenomenon because there are all these mm. Indian, Indian nationalists online now that are yes. actually anti-china mm. and so you know they're not always included in that framing but you know we talked about even that like that kind of potential push the milk tea alliance a little right wing all these like pro yeah you people. want to talk about fucking um, reaction anti-china reactionaries i mean jesus some of those yeah, yeah, yeah. supporters are like whew. yeah it's crazy it's crazy yeah, yeah yeah and so that's that's interesting to keep an eye on but yeah it's funny because uh, a lot of people on the left let's say talked about the BRICS, you know way decades ago as a possibility of that alliance to, to to fight u.s hegemony or whatever and just evidently that's that's not the case i mean just because they have all their national interests and so i think looking at that failure of that paradigm i mean that points to where china is regionally in terms of its foreign policy like conflict with india um you know russia i don't know what the relation is there but some anxiety yeah. um yeah 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 so i think we'll have to see on that all right i think we can wrap it up then we've been going for over an hour i try and keep it an hour <laughs> most times um yeah, cool great so yeah that was great brian yeah um thank you so much uh, you got some plugs um not particularly, but I mean, this New Bloom magazine and Lausanne and uh, so forth. I mean, uh, New Bloom is a, uh, like I mentioned, is founded as a kind of leftist pro-independence outlet. Uh, we cover news in, in Taiwan, um, you know, commentary, news, arts and culture. Um, we just want to know just generally what's going on. When big events happen um, with like China and Hong Kong, we also write on that. It's more like a news report because it's very difficult to yeah. access on information on that in English from a left-wing perspective. Uh, Lausanne is, is much more uh, commentary-focused. It's uh, making a left intervention to the discourse in, in Hong Kong. Uh, and and more broadly, just uh, the kind of uh, Sinophone world, and so I think that's also worth checking out. Um, yeah, yeah, so we're talking. Yeah, great. Good, Thank yeah, you so thanks. much. All right, uh, so we'll be back with you next week. Thank you. Everyone. Yeah, sounds great. Goodbye. So I say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Bye, buddy. All right, I'll stop recording. <laughs> Seriously, I don't get why you guys hate me, but maybe lately you get you crazy sometimes.